Hello, and welcome to Wealth of Nations, a Euromoney podcast. My name's Chris Wright, and I'm the Asia editor of Euromoney. I'm interviewing the leaders of some of the most significant and interesting sovereign wealth and pension funds in the world. CAS de Depot et Placement du Québec, known colloquially as the CAS, was formed in 1965 to manage the funds of a universal retirement plan called the Quebec Pension Plan. By the 1980s, it was active in international markets and real estate, by the late 90s was in private equity and infrastructure, and today is recognized as one of the most influential and sophisticated pension fund enterprises in the world. As of December 31, 2021, it had 419.8 billion Canadian dollars, or about 326 billion US, under management, which has grown at an annualized 8.6% return since 1965. It's a portfolio that stands out for its allocation to real assets, including 45.3 billion Canadian dollars in infrastructure. Overall, CDPQ invests depositors' funds on behalf of 6 million Quebecers through 46 pension and insurance plans. Emmanuel Jacquelot is responsible for that part of the portfolio. He has been Executive Vice President and Head of Infrastructure since June 2018 and sits on the board of CDPQ Infra, a developer subsidiary, which we'll discuss. CDPQ continues to do infrastructure deals that are beyond the scope of many of its peers. In June, it announced a $5 billion investment in DP World's Dubai assets, including the Middle East's biggest port and two industrial zones. But if you're ever going to talk about infrastructure in Canada, you won't get far before the subject turns to the 407, which is a toll road that sweeps in an arc to the north of Toronto and is revered worldwide by infrastructure specialists as one of the most significant toll roads in the world. CDPQ was among the original buyers of this road in a landmark sale by the province of Ontario in 1999, and it's with that that we ask Emmanuel to set the scene around the importance of infrastructure to CDPQ. I think as you've alluded to, we, uh, I think our first investment in infrastructure was a 407. It happened to be a direct investment, and I think that sort of built the ground for, uh, for the direct approach to investing in infrastructure. Generally speaking, you know, CDPQ is uh, managing uh, 46 clients, so a lot of which are pension plans. So there's a long-term logic to what we're doing. So we're building a portfolio of equities, uh, debt, real estate, private equity, and the latest addition has been infrastructure. And you know, the role of infrastructure in the overall portfolio balance has been growing for the last uh, 15 years, so to speak. Uh, quite accelerated growth over the last five years. And we've had the mandate to double the size quite regularly of, of the portfolio. And now it reached uh, quite an impressive scale of it represents 11% of the uh, 330 billion US dollars of, of asset that we are managing on behalf of our clients. So it's, it's about a you know, 37 or 38 billion US dollar portfolio of equity that we invested in about 30 companies. And you know, we kept this logic of, uh, of investing in directly in the assets. And that's with the view of you know, being a long-term investors and wanting to have um, an impact on the companies that we invest in. Now, in the time that CDPQ has been building its expertise in infrastructure, I'd suggest it's probably got a bit harder to find uh, the right assets. Competition is intense for yield, uh, geopolitics are uncertain, and the macroeconomic environment is changing. So what are the key attributes of good infrastructure investments? As you said, frankly, it's been uh, competitive for as long as I've been in the space. Um, so ha- that hasn't changed a lot. It's been uh, thought after. I think, you know, every year we beat the latest fundraising and there's more and more appetite. And uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but my sense it's 
the interest is going to stay intact. Uh, what's new really over the last, you know, 12 months is the volatility that we're seeing in the market. Uh, interest rate play an important role in what we do. Uh, currency exchange as well. Uh, you know, inflation obviously is a key parameter in what we do. So yeah, competitiveness uh, is high, but volatility, I think it's, it's through the roof uh, as far as I'm, I can tell. Um, so how do we play in this, in this market? We've been deploying uh, substantial capital over the last four years, close to uh, north of 10 billion uh, Canadian dollar last year alone. And, you know, we've announced a couple of deals this year already, and it sounds like it's going to be a, a prolific year as well. I think a few things. The first is the scale. We've been at it for a long time and, and we grew to a scale which is fairly important. Uh, I think we're the second you know, largest institutional investor in the world. Um, and with scale comes the, uh, the chance to hire talents. Uh, and, uh, you know, and we've done so. We are about 80 uh, investment professionals. We have, in addition to that, we legal team, tax teams, uh, middle office, back office, uh, ESG, risk, et cetera, that, that comes on top. So it's, it's, it's gotten to a big size. And uh, we managed to have people in uh, eight different offices across five continents. So we are close to our assets. We're close to regulators. We're close to a management team. We speak same language, uh, you know, in Brazil, in Spain, Germany, France, the UK, uh, Australia. Uh, we're in Singapore, in Delhi, obviously, in Mexico. So that, that's, that's a good way to find new opportunities to manage the asset that we have at hand. Um, and that enables us, you know, to have bilateral conversation with some of the players. And I think this is where it's uh, uh, scale matters is the network of partners we, we've been able to develop throughout the last 20 years of investing in the space has been important. Uh, the reputation that we've built as being a serious partner with a long-term view and helping the companies that we invest in throughout the good times and the bad times. Uh, you know, the latest was Eurostar where... Uh, with our partner SNCF, we bailed it out of the heightened crisis of COVID that, you know, we, we had some months with negative sales, revenues. So that's not something you typically see in infrastructure, right? So, and, you know, it's doing, it's doing much better now. But this is a kind of thing that we do uh, with our capital that, you know, gives us some good reputation, enables us to have, you know, bilateral conversation with some of these big players and, you know, get towards good transaction. And the last one I want to point out is the scale, as I mentioned, allows us to go for larger transactions where there's a little bit less um, competition. Uh, we've announced a, a deal in, uh, in buying the port of Dubai, which is a $5 billion transaction, US dollars. It was a bilateral conversation from the start, and we were able to provide you know, this kind of capital to our partner, DP World, there. And this is important, I think, as well. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking right now since it's only a week or so after the uh, DP World transaction was announced because it is, I think, fascinating. The sheer scale of it really does stand out. Uh, within that $5 billion, I think you, CDBQ, are investing $2.5 billion with the remainder being financed by debt and the potential for more to come later. There really aren't many places that could do that. So maybe tell us a little bit more about that transaction and how uh, it came together and why it was appealing. Sure, I mean... The relationship we have with DP World, we're in, uh, uh, we're in four continents and uh, 12, uh, 12 terminals with them already. So, you know, we, we speak with the management team of DP World on a weekly basis, uh, lots of up and downs and overall a great partnership. Um, so it, it started with, you know, the need of DP World to find an extra source of capital because they took the company private. It was uh, listed 
Um, and so, you know, we, we started to structure this deal where uh, we take a stake in, in the port of Dubai, as well as the logistical zone, uh, which is nearby. And the balance of the two is quite important. And, and the view of Deeper and our view is port and the logistic part nearby are really a great combination, very uh, powerful combination to drive, um, in particular, uh, origin and destination traffic, which is the most resilient uh, traffic you get in a port. And we obviously value resiliency uh, a lot. So that's how it started. The deed itself, you know, it's valuing the uh, the combination at uh, 23 billion US dollars. Uh, what we have done is we've we spoken for the first 5 billion, as you mentioned, have that half CDPQ's equity. Uh, we're looking for an extra 3 billion, probably similar kind of uh, of leverage. So an extra one and a half billion of, uh, of equity and looking at a lot of our existing partners to uh, fund this, uh, this Delta. So, you know, the deal for us, obviously, is a crown jewel of, of DP World, uh, you know, their home port. You benefit from all the network that they've created with their 60-plus uh, terminals across the world. For us, uh, looking at the portfolio dynamics for us, we, we were very exposed to ports and, you know, uh, you know maritime traffic in, uh, in the Pacific. We are very little exposure to the Africa, South Asia, and kind of Middle East uh, zone. So this is a good way for us to diversify our portfolio into this zone which if you look at it, and uh, crystal ball, but it has a different growth dynamic. I can say that, I'm sure, compared to Europe or North America. So for us, it has quite a good uh, diversification effect to our portfolio as well. So that's how we, we got to the deal with DP World. Uh, it's a 30-year concession. Uh, it's, it's well-structured. It was designed on purpose uh, to allow for our, our investment and, and, and leveraging it to kind of 50%. So it's, uh, you know, uh, fingers crossed, but uh, very comfortable with the uh, with the acquisition, and and so far the the volume are are doing great. One interesting characteristic of CDPQ is that it owns a subsidiary, CDP Infra, which was founded in 2015. It's a developer of infrastructure rather than just an investor, a principal contractor for major public infrastructure projects, which aims to generate commercial returns for CDPQ while limiting the financial impact of infrastructure projects on government balance sheets. Its signature project is a development called REM, Rezo Express Metropolitan, an integrated public transportation network in Greater Montreal for which CDPQ has committed 3.2 billion out of 6.5 billion Canadian dollars. If I start with a slightly bigger picture, uh, we had a big mandate to invest in infrastructure and you know, uh, there's somehow a scarcity of investment opportunities. So very early on, we decided we should go for Greenfield and build those assets. You know, it comes with obviously risk but there's a reward as well in terms of uh, extra yield you can generate from taking this construction and development risk. So that was kind of the uh, the origin. So uh, there's a few investments that we've done uh, which come with a greenfield uh, capability. You know, in Vernergy in the US, big renewable developer, Azure in India, big solar developer. Uh, we bought Plenary in Canada and the US, which develops and, and builds PPPs. So there's this willingness to uh, to go for new assets. And we found that there was a hole in the market in terms of um, uh, having a counterparty that could develop in partnership with the government, our large authority, big transportation projects. So we decided to, to create this company from scratch, you know, hiring the first employee and then they're close to 100 employees now that could co-develop with, with a public authority a transportation project of large scale, which is slightly different from what you see in PPPs. Where PPPs, there is a lot of study and work done by the government. They they decide what they need and they and they put it in a, in a bidding contest and then there's a structure of PPP that comes on it. Here we come much earlier on in the project development phase, and you know 
help speed up the construction and development of the project as well. So that's how the, the idea came. Uh, we started it with a project in Montreal called the REM, which is 67 kilometers of track with an uh, electrical um, uh, light rail metro system, really, which is under construction uh, as we speak. Um, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's a good model, you know, from start of construction in 2018, and we should commission the first branch, which is the South Bank, uh, connecting the central station to the South Bank of the river. Uh, it should be live end of this year. There's been a few delays uh, with COVID and you know, the usual delays that you get in large projects, but overall it's, it's still really fast, right? From, from first shovel to a uh, partial commissioning in five years, it, we still view it a, as a fairly good success. Yeah. yeah, REM is a fascinating deal for its scope. What have you learned from it along the way? Uh, as you say, you're into construction now. It's been uh, quite a long while in the planning prior to that. So, so, so what are the lessons you've gained from this experience? Well, the lessons are you need a, a team dedicated to that. There's a lot of um, communication aspects to it as well. So you really need a company. There's no debate on that. I think that that's what we ended up creating. Management of the contract as well uh, in, uh, in an ecosystem in, in Quebec was, uh, was clearly uh, uh, an important factor. I think overall, you know, the usual construction elements, strong contracts uh, with strong counterparties. Obviously, we faced events that we hadn't planned for, such as COVID. Now we're facing a little bit of height uh, in inflation. Hopefully, the, you know, the, uh, the bulk of the construction is behind us now. But this is a kind of, uh, of issue that you price early on in the, I was mentioning earlier, construction and development risk. That, that's, that, that needs to be priced in. And, and we, we had put in place a fairly robust capital structure with uh, mostly equity. Uh, and that's proven really helpful to, uh, to keep the deal uh, fairly positive for the portfolio overall. Yeah. And in terms of how this all works for the end investors uh, who you're representing at CDPQ, how does it help to be in there as a developer, being in there earlier, driving the very idea of the infrastructure rather than waiting for PPP invitations to bid? Well, there's, a, there's two answers here. The first one is the overall answer, if we were to build this in, in the US, for instance, or where we hope to build it in, in New Zealand, you know, it's... It's come in early, uh, secure, secure the projects, uh, design, optimize it. I think we, we think we can deliver a better cost of service and, and faster delivery of the project. So that's the main, the main advantages, you know, because we, we helped develop a project that is optimized for the 100-year or 50-year or whatever length of concession that you, you get afterwards. So I think the alignment of interest between the public interest and, uh, and that of... Uh, the investor here is, is easier to establish. I think specifically for doing investment in, uh, in Quebec, we have at CDPQ a dual mandate, which is, you know, make the most money for our depositories, our clients, our 46 clients. And uh, we have a second mandate, which is to help develop economically Quebec. So obviously that played uh, in both uh, with the REM. Uh, we were able to, to finally put together a project that is critical to in our view, to development of the Montreal island, you know, connecting the airport, connecting the South Bank, connecting uh, uh, various parts of the island uh, in, a, in a fast and green manner. And, and, you know, pieces of the concept have been debated for the last 50 years in, in Quebec and in Montreal. And where we were able to pull all this together in a fast uh, delivery mode and, and develop this project. We give it a shot for an extension. Uh, you'll ask a question which is called the REM de l'Est which so far will be built by the government, but it's it set kind of the thing in motion to, uh, to build large infrastructure projects and to show that it's possible to develop them and build them. 
Some interesting characteristics of the infrastructure portfolio. 17.5% of it, when last disclosed, was in Asia-Pacific, and a further of 11.4% in Latin America, both heavy overweights when compared with CDPQ's overall portfolio or any MSCI benchmark. In fact, it's probably higher than that now. Apart from where DP World has put in that geographical mix, these figures probably also don't include the April purchase of power transmission assets in Brazil, Peru and Uruguay from Turner Group for €265 million. Euros. So does this mean there are better opportunities in infrastructure and emerging markets than the developed world? No, it's uh, never, uh, never easy to answer a question. Um, and we get it every time we bring an investment opportunity. Um, I think, generally speaking, yes, otherwise we wouldn't do them. Um, but they're not, not necessarily better uh, on a standalone basis. I think what they bring is, um, is portfolio diversification. Clearly, they... Normally, it depends on market. And there's uh, some emerging market that uh, are fairly, uh, fairly low yielding already. But uh, you know, you mentioned Brazil. Uh, we're doing a lot of things in India. Obviously, we mentioned Dubai earlier. Uh, we're looking at things in Indonesia. They come with higher return, and clearly, there's higher risk as well. There's a good balance for that, and that's how we look at every investment opportunity. Where they add value, in my view is on the overall portfolio construction for infra, but generally more for CDPQ is on diversification. Um, you know, uh, I, as I mentioned for the port of Dubai, adding this asset, you know, has very different correlations to a lot of the CDPQ portfolio, both in infrastructure and in CDPQ in general, uh, low correlation with some of the uh, big variables that we are highly exposed to. So, you know, it sort of diversifies out some of the risk. Uh, what my risk team and my construction portfolio team in CPU love about our assets is they admit they have some idiosyncratic risk, but that's good risk. It's funny to say, you know, that uh, a tsunami can wipe out a port. That's idiosyncratic, and CPU can deal with that, you know, uh, but it's a good risk in a way. Uh, we still need to do the best to avoid that and make sure we get the proper insurance coverage, we get the right key height, et cetera. But, in terms of risk, it's a good risk somehow. There's good risk that I discovered coming to CDPQ. Sure. And how about the idea of what actually is infrastructure? Is your own view of what constitutes an infrastructure asset changing? <laughs> I think if I wasn't working for CDPQ, I'd certainly have a different answer to that, Chris. <laughs> um, we are quite agnostic to the description, to be frank. The only thing, uh, because we don't have uh, you know, an LP that... Uh, wants us to do core or core plus, uh, you know, something very specific. Uh, the only thing that we need to make sure is we're not doing real estate because we have a great real estate team called Ivanoi Cambridge that does that. We don't want to be doing private equity because we have a great private equity team. Uh, and more often than not, you end up doing low return private equity deal in infrastructure. And that's clearly not a label that we, we want for the product that we offer to our depositories. So yes, my definition is changing slightly. Uh, give you one example. When we started off, it was one of the idea that we wanted to do more uh, digital infrastructure. And frankly, it's, uh, it wasn't an obvious one. And we ended up doing quite a few large investments in towers in the US, in tower in Europe. Uh, we have fiber deal in Brazil. Uh, we're looking at, uh, at a few other opportunities. So that's one of, in my view, the big evolution for the last five years. And we're not, you know, we're probably not at the forefront of the move. And maybe we should have been. Uh, but needless to say, it's still, um, it's still a, a new sector for us and we've built capabilities. I think social infrastructure, we were present in PPPs. We moved a little bit towards you know, 
what we like to call regulated uh, retirement homes as well. This is some uh, new avenues. Um, and the last thing that we're looking at, but it's, it's, I don't think it qualifies as infrastructure yet, but we've put in our portfolio anyway, is um, because we believe it might become a large asset class for infrastructure is hydrogen, uh, both on the uh, downstream and on the uh, upstream. And so we are doing very selective and very tiny investment in this space, which frankly, if you look at the face value of it, they don't qualify any of our infrastructure criteria. But nevertheless, uh, we think you know, learning from this investment might be um, a positive for what comes next with the energy transition. So. Interesting. And a characteristic of Canadian funds as they have uh, taken on the world of infrastructure is that quite often you've done so in partnership with one another. I mean, if I look at British airports, for example, it's not uncommon at all to see more than one either pension fund or sovereign wealth vehicle from Canada in the same consortium. Uh, What's the key to working together when you do something like this? Um, Well, consortium, I think there's... um there's three buckets of consortiums. There's the the, um, uh, the one that we have the most of, which we we team up with uh, strategic, uh, NG in Brazil, uh, Transurban in Rhodes in Australia, and AES in Energy in uh, in the US, or SNCF I mentioned for rail in France and transportation, and that's a bulk of the sort of consortium partnership that we have. But that that's not exactly pinpointing on your question. Uh, you know, consortium to bid for asset. We've done with uh, quite a few of our peers, uh, not necessarily Canadians. We've done with uh, Omers. They've came in Azure. Uh, we are in with CPPIB in West Connect in Australia. So there's there's plenty of example where it works well. And why it works well is you need to pinpoint people who have very similar alignment of interest, whether it's duration, whether it's ESG criteria, because this topic, when you invest for First two or three years, they, they are not relevant, but they become very relevant very soon after that. Uh, and, and you want a better alignment. We, we like to buy and hold on our assets, and, and they need to be able to, um, to evolve. So this is, a, this is a main reason why it works relatively well with Canadian. It works relatively well with Australian. I think the Australian system has a lot of similarities uh, with uh, that of Canada. And so these partnerships typically work well. And, and the last one that we develop also is having some local money invested alongside ours. We've done this in Mexico. Uh, we have the F4S, which are a local pension plan. Uh, we invested in, uh, in Taiwan, and we have some uh, Taiwanese money as well. Uh, you know, so that's the kind of three types of, of consortium that we've seen. But yeah, so main idea is to gain scale and, and look for bigger tickets, really. So uh, we're trying to replicate that by ourselves, by being able to write big checks up front, which makes things more simple. And there's no better alignment than with yourself, right, Chris? Um, but, you know, conscious that in a lot of those big, big um, uh, opportunities, we, we need to form a consortium of like-minded investors. Yeah. If you break down the overall CDPQ portfolio, it goes like this. 28% equity, 31% fixed income, 20% private equity, 11% infrastructure, 10% real estate. That means 41% of the fund is in the liquid alternative assets, and that's without counting anything illiquid in the fixed income portfolios. What are the advantages and challenges that come with that? Just to re-describe quickly, we, um, we have 46 clients. We don't manage their liabilities. We only have the assets. So that's why we're AAA. Actually, it's quite an invaluable thing in the world these days. But each of them has a different risk appetite and a different duration. So we tailor 
for each of our clients a specific portfolio. And obviously, the, the longer dated uh, liabilities that a client has, the more liquid asset they're happy to take on board. And we advise them on how to do that. So it is a key for me. We benefit from a liquidity premium. I mean, it's debated every year whether there's one or not, but let's not go into that. But it, it needs to match the liabilities of our clients ultimately. So uh, that's for them to decide. What I'll add is, yes, it's liquid. Um, it's liquid compared to a public stock uh, that you can sell, you know, depending on the stock liquidity uh, overnight or over, uh, you know, months or two months. But even at the scale where we get to in CBQ, we, even if we have one 1% of a large cap, it takes a bit of time to sell it. So, you know, there's no immediate liquidity. And what I'll add is there's opportunity to create liquidity in our liquid assets as well. It's not the same, you know, I cannot sell an asset next tomorrow for sure, Chris. But if you tell me I need to sell an asset within a year, I can certainly do that. If you tell me I need to sell 20% of an asset, uh, I can do that in three or four months. You know, so the sense of illiquid, and that's by doing a syndication uh, of one of our assets, you know, they're well-maintained, most of them, and, uh, and it's, it's not very complicated to find investors that can uh, dilute us a little bit in a given asset. So there's a sense of liquidity that we're trying to build in our portfolio as well. And that's why being as we are in, uh, in control of most of our portfolio or in co-control, gives us a lot of latitude to enable some form of liquidity if needs be. And so far, nobody's ever called me and requ requesting liquidity. But th there's a form of liquidity which is not short-dated. Within a, within a few months, you can generate some liquidity out of the uh, infrastructure portfolio as well, I think so. Right. That would be my answer, Chris. Thank you, thank you. And just to wrap it up, if I ask you to look to the future, uh, the future of the portfolio that you manage, uh, the availability of assets, the availability to get a return from them. What do you expect to see? Uh, I'll answer long term because <laughs> I have no, uh, no views on, on, on the short term for sure, and I'll get it wrong for sure. I think, you know, what we're trying to deliver to our clients, we've more or less delivered 9.5% return over the last five years. Last year was, uh, you know, north of 14%. That's that's not something that I have in mind to replicate. But, you know, with this kind of pace, uh, with inflation picking up, uh, with rates going up, I think that's something we should be able to deliver. And we achieve that by keep, keeping on deploying in, uh, in more assets. You know, the size of the portfolio, uh, today call it close, close to 50 billion CAD. I think it's going to get to, uh, you know, 75 or 80 within four or five years. So uh, still a quite a bit amount uh, of growth. Same kind of return um, that we've been able to deliver in the past. Probably bigger transaction than what we've done in the past. We sort of doubled the average ticket size uh, in the last four years of our portfolio uh, from 500 million to north of a billion now. So this is a trend that will keep on going for sure. Still similar kind of geographical um, diversification. Uh, probably more, uh, more things in Asia. We want to open a a couple of new markets this year and next, uh, probably around Japan and Indonesia. That's kind of, you know, prospectively, Chris, where I see things heading. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everyone. This has been a Euromedy podcast written by Chris Wright with editing by Stefan Inglis.